The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning, and welcome once again to Inside Transformational Leadership. I'm Kate, and I'm just delighted you've joined us this morning for this conversation with Chalmers Brothers about the transformational power of language. Chalmers is one of my favorite people to talk with. Um, He is a professional consultant, speaker, and coach who spent 30 years helping people to make positive changes in their lives and in their organizations. He's the author of Language and the Pursuit of Happiness, a book that I highly recommend to you. We use this book as a text for both of our certificate programs at Georgetown because Chalmers has written it in a way that makes it accessible to us, and he's bringing together some um, deceptively simple ideas um, that actually can really transform the way that we live, the way that we lead. So welcome this morning. Thank you for joining me, Chalmers. It's a pleasure, Kate. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted that you're here, and, you know, I think as we were thinking about this series, Chalmers, we realized that your work is so foundational for people who are learning to become coaches, but also for leaders who are really trying to um, expand their capacity to lead and understand how to be different, how to be, how to be better, how to be more effective. And we really uh, believe that um, the ideas that we're going to be talking about today are essential to transformation. So I thought that um, we could begin this morning with uh, an invitation to you. Uh, In the book, you do a beautiful job of illuminating these concepts about language and the way that language can, um, can, the way that we live in language, to use your your words. To start out, I'd like to take a statement from your book and just ask you to explain it to us, Chalmers. The statement is, we live in language the way that fish live in water. What do you mean by that? You know, one of my, my favorite little stories, Kate, these, there's an older fish, and he's swimming past some younger fish, and the older fish says to the younger fish, beautiful water we have today. And the younger fish go down a few feet, and they sit and they pause, they look at each other and say, what water? And so the notion is that a fish is born in water, lives in water, water all around, water everywhere, and when would a fish first know that it's born in water and lives in water? Well, he would first know that when he's out. (laughs) Well, we are born in language and live in language, and it's so close we don't see it. And one of my favorite expressions that really points to this is attributed to Mark Twain. Now, I don't know if he actually said this, but I love this quote. And the quote is, I'm always in conversation, and sometimes other people are involved. And, And what it means, it's not just Mark Twain or whoever said that quote, but that we live in language in an ongoing internal narrative. Um, it's not just 
you know, individuals that have uh, schizophrenia, right? I, I do what the voices in my head. No, this is us. It's constitutive of being a human being. And, Kate, because we live in language, what we can see is that you and I and everybody, leaders at all levels, individuals, all walks of life, we are confronted with events, events at home, events at work, events on the job, events with our kids, events. And what we do as a human being is we make up stories about these events. We hold these stories to be the truth, and we forget that we made them up. Because we live in language, this is what we do. And we soon, if we don't watch it, we can begin living as if our explanation of the event is the event. And in my work with leaders and with everybody, a crucial distinction that we start with is event does not equal explanation. Fundamental distinction, event does not equal explanation. And once we begin to see that, we can begin to be much more conscious and much more purposeful about creating a wide variety of results that we create for ourselves. Because here's a question. Is it the events of our lives or our explanations about those events that are more influential as to the actual actions we end up taking in the world? Mm. It's the explanations. And, of course, out of the actual actions that we take in the world, we produce something called results in a wide variety of areas. So early, so, early in, in, in my work, I always focus here. So I'd love to just um, take that apart a little bit. I think, I think what you're saying is um, synergistic with the conversation that we had uh, last week with um, Dr. Neil Struhl about story and meaning-making. Um, but I love what you've just said about um, event does not equal explanation. And it sounds like what you're really saying is that something happens, event, um, how you make meaning out of that determines really what happens next. So that, that, that there's not one explanation, but there there could be many. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. In fact, I ask a group of people, I say, you know, out of any given event, how many possible explanations are there? Well, it's limitless. It's limitless. And once we begin to notice that and take responsibility as the author well, now we can begin asking ourselves a different question. Not, is this explanation right or wrong, but is it powerful or unpowerful given the results I say I want? Sense? Yeah, I do. You know, it, it reminds me, Chalmers, of you know, sort of the Thanksgiving dinner table where the whole family comes together, but if you interviewed each family member the day after, they'd have a different yes. story about what actually happened. Yes. So yes. I, yes. I wonder, you know, um, I wonder if you could just um, explain a little bit more about um, this powerful choice we have in terms of how we, how we make meaning. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, human beings are apparently addicted to meaning, meaning an event happens, and that's not the end of it, that's the beginning of it, right? Apparently, because we live in language, making meaning, constructing stories, it's what we do. And it's very interesting. Those of us who are parents, we know this. Our job as a parent, whether we're coaching or counseling, or, or a leader at any level, if we're coaching, counseling, mentoring, or guiding, informally or formally with adults or kids, this is a big part of what we're doing in our role as a coach or a mentor, is it not? Helping the other person understand, come to, adopt a different and more powerful, in our eyes anyway, a more powerful explanation, because we could see if they did that, it would lead them to this action and not that one, and this result and not that one, and this is the result that they've said they want. But, Kate, none of this makes any sense at all 
if we don't see ourselves as doing this now. And one of my main metaphors in my program I call the big eye, and it's a big eyeball in the sky looking at a stick person and <laughs> indicate, right, you taking a look at you, me taking mm-hmm. a look at me. Self-awareness is the starting point for any purposeful, meaningful change, including change at this level. So it really begins with being a fish who knows that it lives in water. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, once we can begin to see that we are in an ongoing process of making meaning, an ongoing process of interpreting, and there's a great expression, we live in an interpretive world, right? We are constantly interpreting. I mean, one of the main distinctions that I was taught in this work and that I now teach is that human beings, we don't have a data link to other human beings in terms of how we speak and how we listen, right? That machine metaphor of transmitter, receiver, and signal, that works fine for digital communications, but human communication is all about interpretation, whether we're interpreting another person or interpreting an external event. We are constantly interpreting. And once we can begin to see this, we can begin to ask a very different set of questions, ones that are much more about, are my interpretations leading me toward or away from the results I say I want? Very different question. You know, you know, as, as, as people wake up to this important um, information and this, this uh, ability really to, to notice that we live in language and that we have um, choice about the meaning that we make uh, when an event happens or, or as life progresses. Um, how does this open up new options for people? You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we can say is that we human beings, we live in community, we work in community, we do a great majority of the things that we do with and through other people. And understanding what we're talking about here has a great deal to do with our capacity to establish and maintain mutually beneficial, healthy relationships. Fundamental. Most of our relationships, right, are not physical, they're not sexual. They are conversational. Mm -hmm. We change our conversations with people, and we know this, Kate, we change our conversations with people, and over time, we've changed our relationship with that person. And so, at a basic level, our ability to form and maintain mutually beneficial, healthy relationships is equal to our capacity to understand this and to recognize the creative, generative impact of these conversations. Um, so, so if I were hearing this for the first time, Chalmers, and just listening, you know, maybe, as maybe some of our audience members are, um, you're really inviting people to pay attention to the conversation that they're having and understand that by changing that conversation, they can change the relationship. That's exactly right, Kate. And, and it's resting on um, a type of, I guess we can call a paradigm shift, meaning a shift in a, a basic way of understanding something. Um, we live, most of us, with a notion that if you ask a whole lot of people what's language, what's language for, the great majority will answer with, well, it's a tool for communication, a tool for describing a consensual code for describing how things are. And that's only half the story. And that's not even the most interesting half. The interpretation that my book is based on and the interpretation that I use in all of my workshops is that language creates and generates. It does not simply describe. And that interpretation is the foundation for all the new results that become possible when we see it this way. And we use this expression, right? 
we don't see things the same way, it's interesting. How many of us know people that the way they see a problem or a situation is itself a big part of the problem? And that difference, seeing things differently, has nothing to do with our retinas, right? It's a metaphor. It's not a biological difference. That difference in seeing things, as you pointed to, has a, it, it points to a difference in how we make meaning, how we interpret, how we explain. That's so let, let's go to that for a moment, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the, the big eye in the sky, you know, becoming an observer of, of oneself, um, as you put it, you can't change what you don't see. How do I become a, a good observer of myself? You know, what, what, does, what, what would I need to do if I wanted to begin that practice? Well, one of the ways that we start here is by acknowledging that you and I and everybody else, we can be understood as a walking, talking congruency of three separate but highly interdependent aspects, our language, which is internal and external conversations, our moods and emotions, and our physical bodies. So imagine three circles that are linked together, and these, th- these three circles, language, moods and emotion, and body, this is us, a walking, talking bundle of congruency. So to me, when I think about becoming a more powerful observer of myself, one of the starting points is to acknowledge that I am a linguistic being. I live in language. I'm also an emotional being, obviously. I have emotions. I have moods. And I'm clearly a biological being, a physical being. And that these three are influencing and impacting each other. And causality is mutual among these, meaning to become a more powerful observer of myself is becoming a more powerful observer of my thought process, my internal and external conversations, a more powerful observer of my moods and emotions, because we all know our moods have a dramatic impact on our interpretations, which obviously impact our actions and our results in the world, Mm -hmm. and obviously becoming a more powerful observer of our physical bodies. How do we carry ourselves through time and space? Because over a lifetime, the way I carry myself physically I'm going to say is connected to my predominant mood space, which is connected to my predominant way of interpreting, making meaning, my predominant way of entering into or avoiding certain conversations, all of which have a dramatic impact on the results that I produce in my life. Another way that I can become a more powerful observer of myself is I can enroll other people to help me, right? Meaning I can ask my wife or I can ask a colleague, you know what? I'm trying to become a better observer of myself and how I handle this kind of situation. Next time you see me in this kind of situation, I'd like for you, if you don't mind, to find some time with me afterwards where we can have a conversation because I'd like your your feedback about this. So becoming a more powerful observer of ourselves can also include getting feedback from other people so we understand a little bit more about our public identity, how we're showing up, how we're being perceived, by the other non-hermits, right, that we do everything that we do with. But these three aspects, Kate, for me, are very central. We're linguistic, we're biological, and we're emotional, and they're all connected. And, and, so, and, and I, I love the clarity of that, and I think that's really great advice. Um, it really, you know, gives people a place to start observing themselves in each of these three dimensions. And, you know, I think one of the things about self-observation that I find as a coach is that we have to be like scientists, kind of curious and objective about what we find when we are self-observers. You know, if we're too quick to to um, judge ourselves or to, um, 
to, you know, to, to be embarrassed about what we discover when we begin to be self-observant, yes. then sometimes we don't take the next bold step, you know. So I, I would just say, I would just add to what you're saying and, and suggest that, you know, that the first step really is self-observation in a, in a compassionate way, you know, just noticing uh, without judgment. How am I? I think that's fantastic, you know, and, and a lot of coaching work, we invite people, listen, just take a look. The first step is just to notice without congratulating yourself or beating yourself up, right? Right. Let's just just notice. And then once you notice, well, then we get to choose. Then we get to choose. That's that's excellent. Well, I know we're we're getting close to our break, but, you know, I wonder if you would mind, Chalmers, do you have an example of um, maybe somebody you've worked with or or yourself who have... Go ahead and just give us an example of somebody who's become self-observant and a choice that that opened up. Well, I can speak for myself very Mm -hmm. clearly. I mean, it was a gigantic aha moment when I recognized, Kate, that I didn't have objectivity, right? When when everybody didn't see the world like I did. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I I, kind of grew up. Again, nobody had this conversation with me when I was a kid. But I kind of grew up thinking that my eyes were basically, you know, clear panes of glass. And the way I look out at the world, well, that's just kind of how the world is. And, you know, yeah, we may have slight differences in how we perceive color. But, you know, beyond that, we're, we basically are, you know, just objective. And that shifted everything. I, I somehow thought I had privileged access to the truth. And uh, it was a very eye-opening and very humbling experience. And the way it was taught to me was this. We are each fundamentally unique observers. Every human being is a unique observer. That's the new starting point. And for me, it was, you know, new observer didn't mean new eyes, right? It meant new way of interpreting, making meaning, understanding. The internal narratives that I lived in um, were not the internal narratives that my brothers were living in, were not the internal narratives of my mom and dad, my friends. You know, it sounds so clear as you say it, and yet it's such a revelation. You know, my guest this morning is Chalmers Brothers, and I'm Kate Ebner. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, and we're going to take our first break, and we'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, Produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back. This is Kate. I'm speaking with Chalmers Brothers, the author of Language in the Pursuit of Happiness, a coaching consultant who travels all over the nation helping individuals and organizations uh, find a positive way of approaching the future. And we've been talking about language and transformation through language this morning. Um, I want to look at this from the lens of the leader Chalmers, and as we think about, um, you know, as you, as you know, our institute is really about transformational leadership and helping people to see how to lead a transformation, but also how to allow themselves to be transformed um, by the very act of leadership. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about how language plays a role in transformational leadership. You know, when I even hear the term, Kate, transformational leadership, I think change. I think evolving or growing, uh, changing, becoming. And so when we think about change and language, one of the most important things to me is this. We live in a background of ongoing change. That's an already given constant. And the, the question for leaders and organizations is, given this background of change, how important is learning for your organization and for you as an individual? And I ask this question all the time, and it comes back, it's a 10 out of 10. It's hugely important. So how can we create an openness or a context for us to more actively learn, not just classroom learning, right, but learning, not, learning to ride a bike, learning to rebuild an important relationship, learning to lead a company effectively in times of change. One of the most important prerequisites for this learning is a language step. It's when the learner thinks or says out loud, I don't know. Now, to me, when we declare I don't know, we're not describing a state of affairs. We're producing something. What, we're, what, what we are creating is an openness or a context for learning. It was not there five seconds ago. Now it's here. And, Kate, this to me is one of the most important ways that we say language creates. We create out of what we speak. We create an openness or a context for learning. And the question I ask leaders is, given the importance of learning in a time of change and given the impact of I don't know on our capacity to learn, how do you treat people in your organizations who say I don't know? This is a culture question, is it not? Right? Is it okay in a public space for someone to answer an inquiry with, I don't know? And I frame it this way. I say, guys, I don't know when I'll find out by Tuesday and now it's Wednesday. That's a different thing. I'm not talking about that. That's a commitment. 
I'm talking now, broadly speaking, the first time it becomes apparent in the organization, is it acceptable, is it okay to say, I don't know? Because if one of our desired results is an ongoing, innovative workplace, a culture of innovation, a culture of learning, our capacity to do that is not going to be supported, obviously, by embarrassing people or slapping their hands when they say, I don't know. And as an individual, Kate, as I think about a transformational leader, one of the, one of the uh, most important characteristics, I believe, is at an individual level, our ability to say, I don't know. I do a ton of work with leadership peer groups. These are CEO roundtable groups. And when I get to this point, I let them know, guys, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Because would you ever find yourself in a leadership peer group if you thought that you, never, that you already knew everything? Well, of course not. But a fundamental position of openness, again, not physically open, right, but openness to learning is declared into being. We speak it into being. By simply saying, I don't know. We declare beginnerhood into being. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that this is indeed um, the starting, a starting point for transformation. And we, we find in our work with our students at, at the Institute that in both of our programs we start with this premise of, you know, we, we actually start with two ideas. One is you're already great, you already know a lot, and the other is you're a pure beginner yep. and in the space of learning. And there is a need and an, uh, uh, to create a space for people to not have to be an expert, not have to know. And I, I think it's very interesting when we step back and look at our societal expectation that the leader knows everything, that the leader should know that the that success means having the answer, um, that, that actually really inhibits uh, growth and um, creativity and innovation. So I, I, think it's a, I think it's a really interesting idea to, to ask oneself as a leader, what happens to someone in this organization when they say, I don't know? Absolutely. I mean, it, it is a culture question, right? It, it really says a lot about the type of culture that, that the organization has as, as to whether it's okay or not. And, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. and when you come into something, as you said, you know, the mindset that, okay, I'm here to learn, like your CEO group, I, I, something I need to learn, it's a different stance than when you come in thinking, I know the answer, I have something to share, I have something to impart. Um, and, and, and from that different stance, comes a different conversation. To you. Absolutely. In fact, when you use the word stance, what comes to mind for me is context. Mm-hmm. Right? And the older I get, the more important context is. It's mm-hmm. not physical, but it's utterly real. And we declare a context of learning. Right? We declare a context of excellence. We declare, we speak this into being. And the more I do this work, Kate, the more important context is. An organizational context, and again, this is declared into being by your mission, your vision, your values, your goals, your priorities, or an individual context. Openness to learning, my values as an individual, they, they serve to orient us, obviously, one way or the other, which dramatically influences how we interpret events that haven't happened yet. But it all happens with context. Well, I wonder, you know, as, as you say that, and you think, and I agree with you, how, how vitally important context is and, and how interesting context always is. Yes, yes. If we look at organizational context, you know, the mission, vision, strategy, you know, sort of the, the, the landscape in which we operate, um, and then we think about uh, the individuals who populate that organization and their individual context, how does a leader help 
um, individuals in the organization align around the organizational context. You know, one of the first most powerful things that I learned in, in doing this work, and I think it was Peter Drucker years ago, he said something, and I think it goes along the lines, culture, eat strategy for breakfast, right? And that expression, culture, eat strategy, I ask people, I say, what does that mean? Well, it means that no matter how logically sound or analytically intelligent the strategy may be, if the human beings who are the enablers and implementers of that are not aligned or not communicating or working together in such a way, it will never see the light of day. And so the best model for me that I've used in organizations, imagine a house. It has a basement or a foundation. It has a middle part, and it has a roof. And the foundation is the come-from, mission, values, standards. The top, the roof, is the go-to, the vision, the goals, the objectives, the priorities. And the middle is human beings coordinating action. Right? Human beings, whether it's a global company coordinating action globally, a local company coordinating action locally, and this little drawing, Kate, has been my starting point for talking about alignment and talking about the role of a leader. If you look at the basement and the roof, these are culture conversations. Our job as a leader is to build shared understanding and shared commitment to who we are and where we're going. Make sense? It does make sense. Who we are and where we're going. And you used a very important phrase, you know, sort of the leader's a job, you know, is to is to tell that story, you know, where we are and where we're going, also probably where we've been. And I I would then want to zoom in on a phrase you use, coordinating action. So the next question is, how do we get there? And the aligning of, of people toward uh, the, the future that, that everyone wants or that's been articulated as desirable. Um, language is the way we coordinate action. Can you speak about the use of language. Absolutely. To key on your conversation about leaders, leaders get paid to have effective conversations, right? You can be a strong leader without the ability to lift 100 pounds over your head. It's a metaphor. So first and foremost, leaders are conversational engines. That's why this conversation we're having is important, because leaders get paid to have effective conversations. So with this, as we talk about coordinating action, When you look at an organization, no matter how big or how small, centralized or decentralized, simple or complex, the organization itself can be understood at a foundational level as human beings coordinating action. Said differently, people making and managing promises to each other. So the company, any company, can be understood at a foundational level as a network of commitments, a nested network of people making and managing promises to each other, big ones, little ones, boardroom, bathroom, simple, complex. And when we see, when leaders see their organization as a network of commitments, that 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 is the essence of execution. That's how things actually get done. Tangible results in the real world get accomplished via this network of commitments, people making and managing promises. And when we look through this lens at our organization, ways for intervening and helping pop into view. And so now we're talking about very specific tools, right, called an effective request and valid responses. There are a set of fundamental language acts. A declaration is a fundamental language act. 
assertions and assessments, which are very similar to facts and opinions, fundamental language act, but also requests, offers, and promises. And these are the vehicles for directly improving execution within organizations, giving people a shared vocabulary, a little bit of rigor, right, around how we make a request. Are we specific? Do we have a time frame that's explicit enough to be understood? Do we have conditions of satisfaction that are mutually understood by everybody? Are we setting a context in the request to understand and, and help the other person understand, get shared meaning? And the way that we respond to requests, are we allowing people in an organizational setting to respond to important requests with maybe I'll try and we'll see? Because the overall claim is this. If you look at that overall network of commitments that an organization is, if you have a lot of those commitments, those commitment cycles, allowed to be closed with maybe I'll try and we'll see, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. You're going to have misunderstandings. Things will fall through the cracks. You will sub-optimize at best and train wreck at worst. And so when I think about leaders and alignment and helping people coordinate action, where the rubber hits the road is are we making effective requests and are we using valid responses in an organizational setting? And we're going to call these conversational competencies, right? These are tools in order to improve organizational performance. Well, it's very, I mean, it's, a, it's great. You just covered a lot of ground. And for those listening, you know, Chalmers has written about this extensively in his book, and I highly recommend if you're interested in learning more about these speech acts and, and what they are and how to do them, to follow up um, by taking a look at language in the pursuit of happiness. But you've really um, laid out this uh, criticality of making clear requests and of understanding the responses that you get from others. And so often, you know, we're very, very good at saying things that sound like a commitment but really aren't. Like, <laughs> right. you know, like, yeah. um, you know, like, sure, I'll look into it or um, I'll, I'll check on that or I'll ask my boss. You know, yeah. whatever, whatever. we say things that sound promising and very often um, from a leadership perspective, we lack, um, we lack the, 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 I guess the, I don't know what, the, the, the awareness to recognize that we haven't gotten a commitment. We've actually just gotten kind of a hedge response. Um, and, and so often we're asking for things without getting a clear commitment, and then we're, we're shocked or disappointed by what does or doesn't come back. And so this idea of using language to coordinate conversation is um, really very, very, very important if you want to execute well. It's really about making sure that you're asking giving context, making clear, and then ensuring that you have a commitment. And then what happens if somebody, um, if somebody does hedge? How, how, would you, how would you advise a leader who's noticing suddenly the kind of squishy responses? Right. Um, what, what should he do? Well, one of the, my, my favorite expressions here is that a responsible complaint is not the same as complaining, right? It's a key distinction, and so an additional tool that we can have in our toolbox for the sake of improving execution is something called a responsible complaint. Now, some of us may use this already in our own personal lives. And what a responsible complaint is, of course, is when somebody falls down on a commitment, you go to that person, right? And you initiate a conversation about the, the initial promise that was not kept. You, you may renegotiate the commitment. You may end up revoking it. But you go to the person. You don't go... W- w- what we call trolling or 
a recreational character assassination, right? That's not okay. And so at a leader's disposal, as we talk about conversational competencies, there are certain conversations that leaders can say, you know what, these are going to be prohibited conversations. These conversations, recreational character assassination, gossiping in a negative way, these do not get us where we say we want to go. And, Kate, this is key. It's not just that the overall corporate culture allows some of these negative conversations to happen, which it certainly does. It's equally true that by having those conversations, you perpetuate the mood. Causality is two-way. Hmm. So one of the things that we can see now is that it's, it is demonstrably true that corporate culture influences how people work together. But it's equally true that by improving and focusing on how people coordinate action, how people make and manage promises, that itself can be a shaper of culture. And in particular, a culture of commitment and culture of accountability. That's, to me, the essence of this for leaders and organizations. This is important. Can you establish a commitment and maintain a commitment of a, a, a culture of commitment, a culture of accountability? That's powerful. You know, I, I, I really see organizations struggling with this. There's such a desire to have both a culture of commitment and accountability. And, um, you know, the, the, what, what I think of a, a client organization I'm working with where the issue is complacency. And the feeling is that we've got to turn this around. We need to energize this culture. We need to, we need to really end this complacency, and we're going to do it through this. Um, well, they've done a great job of a vision and a, and a strategy and, and involving people and so on. But I think they're worried about execution because they aren't sure that, that given their history, they, they really have what it takes to execute well. And it sounds to me like your advice to anybody who really wants to energize a culture and, and bring people together around a, a mission and a vision is to focus on the quality of these conversations. Absolutely. And I invite leaders, I say, guys, share this house drawing with your most important direct reports, with everybody. Help people understand that what we are, we are human beings making and managing promises at a wide variety of levels. And with that as the context, it makes sense to understand and try to improve how we do this dance together. And to me, these are conversational competencies, right? That's what we're doing. We're giving people tools, some specific distinctions, a shared vocabulary, and we can have a conversation about conversations. We can have a conversation where we teach this, give people permission to make responsible complaints, and set the stage on Monday for something very different on Tuesday. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Chalmers. This is uh, a very rich segment. We're going to take a break right now, and uh, when we come back, I'd love to sort of um, zoom in on more about how to use this awareness. This is Kate Ebner, my guest today, Chalmers Brothers. We'll be right back. markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Thank you once again for being with us today. I've been speaking with Chalmers Brothers, and we've been talking about language, leadership, and transformation. And, you know, as, as everyone knows, um, Chalmers wrote a fabulous book on the subject, which I highly recommend. He also is a speaker with Vistage and a very thought-provoking speaker. I, I want to I share that you're available to do that, uh, Chalmers, because I know that many people may want to um, reach out to you after the show. Um, along those lines, what is the best way to reach you? Well, my website is www.chalmersbrothers.com, and uh, they can email me at info at chalmersbrothers.com, and um, I respond very quickly. I'm, I do travel quite a bit, but I'm very good at, at, at responding to emails, and I definitely look forward to hearing from folks. Excellent. Well, you know, we, we, we have um, turned this this set of distinctions about, about language and awareness toward leadership, and I want to stay there for this last segment and really um, talk more about um, how a leader can be transformed and transform an organization through awareness of, of language, through self-observation and awareness of language. And so I'd like to just um, turn us back to that. And I, I wonder, Chalmers, what you wish that every leader understood about the subject. You know, if leaders understand that language first and foremost, is not only a way of describing things, a way of communicating, that language inherently, there is a generative and creative side to it, and that leaders, at their core, they get paid to have effective conversations. Leaders are wielding this generative, creative energy, and what they're doing is they're producing all sorts of different results, whether they're aware of it or not, and these results may or may not be positive, meaning may or may not be the, 
the sorts of results that the leader is intending. But because language has a generative quality to it, we are constantly producing something. The title of my, my session, Kate, for a lot of workshops is Leadership, Conversations, and Results. And when we use the word results, we have to think very broadly. Obviously, productivity is a result. A profitability is a result. But your corporate culture is a result. The nature of your most important relationships are results. The degree of shared understanding and shared commitment you're able to achieve, that's a result. Your emotional well-being is a result. And so in my work with, with leaders, with the big eye, right, the big eyeball looking at a stick person, mm-hmm. we focus on this from the beginning, self-awareness. Are you aware of the results that you are ongoingly producing? And there are three fundamental ones, Kate, that for me are important. It's relationships, culture, and execution. I ask leaders, what do you get paid to do? And they answer with all sorts of things. As you'd imagine, I get paid to lead, to guide, to motivate, to create structures of accountability, to sell. I get paid to um, coach and mentor and inspire and um, all sorts of things. But when we actually look, a camera is going to see us as leaders talking and listening. That's how we actually do what we say we do. And there are themes that have developed, and I've had this conversation with thousands of of CEOs since this book was published, thousands of CEOs. And when you look at it, three fundamentally important types of results for leaders, regardless of industry, are relationships, culture, and execution. And all of these, language is central. Most of our relationships are not physical. They're not sexual. The tools we need to shape culture, obviously, are not hammers and nails and fertilizer, Right, the tools we need to shape culture, it's discernment in generative conversations. The conversations we require and the conversations we prohibit are spectacular leverage points for purposely shaping culture. And Kate, there's a third mental bucket that I invite leaders to look at. It's missing conversations. Are there missing conversations? Meaning conversations that historically have not been taking place, but if they would, the possibility of new results would emerge. And this lens, I invite leaders to look through. Are there conversations you could be or should be requiring given the results you say you want? Are there conversations you could be or should be prohibiting given the results you say you want? And are there missing conversations? And this lens, for me, one of the most powerful lenses, I think, that we can give to leaders. When you see performance issues in your organization, Look through this lens, not the only lens, right, but look through this lens and see what avenues for intervening may pop into view that don't pop into view, viewed differently. Well, that is is fantastic um, advice, and it certainly has me thinking about the missing conversations and the conversations that I need to be having. I, I also wonder about, I want to go back to the second point about culture, and what I hear and, and, and talk, you know, hear people talk about quite a lot is it's almost like culture is this big sort of atmospheric blanket that surrounds us and we can't do anything about it. It's, the culture is the way it is. It's the way it's been. It's, it's what we're up against, you know. And culture in some places is a very positive idea, but very often I, I encounter um, leaders in organizations who feel like the culture really holds them back. Um, Short of wholesale culture change of some kind, um, what can one person do to influence culture? 
using conversation. You know, as I'm thinking, there are, I don't remember the organization, but it was a large organization, and the, the story goes that people, not at the top, not at the bottom, but in the middle of the organization, simply started doing things differently. And that doing things differently was counter to the prevailing culture, but it kind of took on a life of its own, right? It was like a, a healthy virus, right, that spread through the organization. And, and so for me, when we look at execution, accountability, commitments, you know, a culture of accountability, a culture of, of commitment is, in my experience, one of the most positive cultures that we can enable, that we can bring about. And giving people these tools, regardless of where they are in the organization, having a conversation about how we're going to work together, making commitments that are sideways, right? giving people at our level permission to bring it to our attention if we're doing something that's inconsistent with the priority that we've just laid down, right? enrolling a network of help, because sometimes my big eye is not strong enough to notice things about myself that other mm-hmm. people notice. Mm-hmm. Right? This, mm-hmm. I think, is absolutely doable. It's absolutely doable. And I think the mechanism for doing it is a small group of people makes a commitment and has a, a, makes a public commitment to each other about how we're going to do things differently, right? What, what are we not going to do starting today? What are we absolutely going to do starting today? And this doing almost always means what are we going to say? What are the conversations we are going to have? What are the conversations we're no longer going to have? What are the conversations we're going to invent that have not been invented? And can we declare ourselves beginners, understanding that beginners make mistakes, right? Beginners won't be experts out of the gate in these conversations. And can we give each other permission to give each other feedback about how we're doing in this goal? I think without that, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to make changes, um, cultural changes, from inside the organization I think, absent something like this. Now, obviously, it's easier, more doable, if there is a change at the top, right? The organization at the senior level understands and says, you know what, we are going to change as an organization. We are going to stop doing X and begin doing Y. Our values are going to go from A to B. Whatever that is, obviously, a much, much more productive place to be. But it doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't always happen that way. Well, I think that, you know, one thing that I, I really like to think and, and see through the work that I do as a coach is that one person awakened and conscious and self-observing and consciously using language differently can begin to influence culture, can begin to get new results, and can create a, a different dynamic sort of what you said about do things differently and it really doesn't matter to be at the top it's often these things start well from the middle you know I think that's very hopeful um, hopeful to, for people to hear because we tend to um, step into you know sort of like I can't do anything I'm, 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 I'm helpless here and I, I think what I would encourage based on what you're saying is that for those who are listening to, to experiment with this yes. and you know just try it and see what happens when you first become aware of the conversations you're having and of your part in them, self-observant, and then begin to create by having the conversations that are missing or maybe having the usual conversation but in a very different way. And, you know, Chalmers, when you talk about this, you get, you're very passionate about it. (laughs) 
I enjoy listening to you um, share what you know because I think you um, you give us so much to work with. And so as, as, I, as I was listening to you, even thinking for me and with me about how to help somebody who's in this kind of a culture, you know, there's so, there's so many ideas that you offered about just getting that conversation going and being willing to experiment with that. So I really want to say thank you. I think that was a really great response. You're, you're very welcome. You know, one of the things that, that, that for leaders and for all of us I think is important to understand, if language creates and generates, as we say it does, then clearly what we can do, we can create and generate a different culture. Right? It is not simply one-way causality. Most of us know that the prevailing culture of an organization is going to influence how people do things together. But the converse is equally true. By changing how people do things together, and this is important, right, because the whole organization is human beings making and managing promises, mm-hmm. by changing that, we have a lever for getting our arms around this nebulous, intangible, but very powerful thing called culture. And, Kate, I felt the same way. I mean, by the time I was in my business career, eight, ten years, I was at Anderson Consulting. Uh, I knew there was something called corporate culture, and I knew it was important. And I also knew it was intangible, squishy, nebulous, right, hard to get your arms around. And I really thought this. I thought that charismatic leaders, by virtue of the force of their personality, right, which is magic, right, that these lucky few could somehow shape culture. And for the rest of us, I don't know how to do it. I know it's important, but I don't know how to do it. And it's this way of understanding language, this way of understanding the essence of organizational performance, right? It is the human beings making and managing promises is the heart of everything. And by changing that, dramatic changes are possible in the culture. Thank you so much, Chalmers. That's a really, really clear and compelling and important statement. You know, you have been developing a year-long program called SOAR that you're taking into organizations who want to learn how to have better conversations. And I'm curious, how does it work when a whole organization decides to learn the kinds of things we're talking about today? Well, it's fantastic. And I have to start here by saying Vinay Kumar introduced me to, um, in a deeper way, the Georgetown community, Kate, and and possibilities up there. And so... uh, I've, I've gotten to know a great number of people in the community, and through them, two year-long engagements came from it, and it's half-a-day sessions, about a month apart, and we cover this territory, right? We put people in three-person accountability groups. There's offline homework and reflection and feedback and, and sharing and discussion inside and outside the room. And it's a, you know, learning about is not the same as learning to do, right? So this program gives people a lot of chances to, to actually practice and put into place the new tools, the new frameworks, the new ways of understanding. Um, and it's been a transformational process um, in the organizations that we've been fortunate enough to have extremely strong senior leadership support for this type of learning. Outstanding. Well, I uh, wish you all the best in the work that you're doing, and um, thank you on behalf of all of us for the writing, the thinking, and the sharing that you do. You have a fantastic TED Talk. Um, we'll be sharing that link um, on our website. Um, but I want to just um, end today's show and um, invite everyone listening to please join us again and join me in saying thank you to our guest today, Chalmers Brothers. You thank are you, so, so welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me.
A true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week. 